Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this wonderful day. Thank you for the gift of what it is to come in and worship you and to find an opportunity to sing your songs, to give praise in the spirit of community and the spirit of fellowship. God, we know that all of our efforts fall short of what you deserve. And yet, God, we give everything that we have. We give our hearts, our souls, our minds to you today because we know we need you. And so we ask, God, that you would now meet us, that you would open your word and illuminate everything that we are, that we can be brought into a closer and more intimate understanding of this gospel that has changed us. God, if there's anyone here today that is bringing in a sense of doubt or confusion or has never heard, God, I pray that you'd speak to them directly. For those of us that have maybe heard this gospel time and time again, God, may we hear it afresh and anew today as we seek to be drawn into this amazing experience of worship and understanding that you are king. We love you, Father, and we pray all these things in the precious and holy and sacred name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, choir, so much for leading us this morning during that time of offering. I also want to offer a special word of thanks to Brad for leading us in worship today. Uh, and if you weren't in here, when we mentioned it earlier, um, or last week even, uh, the minister of worship and music here, Matt, uh, just got to celebrate the birth of their uh, youngest family member, Walter Jack, is a, a new boy into the Bowen household. So pray for the Bowens, right? Uh, Matt is at home taking care of his family. We celebrate alongside them and continue to pray for him. Uh, but we're grateful that we have such a wonderful uh, congregation that's filled with talented people that can come in and step and continue to lead us. And so thank you, Brad, uh, this morning. Uh, I also want to elaborate a little bit further on one of the announcements that we uh, mentioned at the beginning of the service as it pertains to Theology Matters. Uh, as you mentioned, or as it was mentioned earlier, Monday, January 27th, we'll be reconvening, and this will be the last of the Theology Matters as it pertains to this current series that we've been doing for the better part of a year. Uh, if you've been with us for any of those, what we sought to do was to create some space where we could kind of work through this statement of faith that we've drafted uh, as a church and, and really kind of have a chance to look through some very challenging subjects and some, some uh, very important matters that come up when you consider uh, what we believe and statement of beliefs, and it's been a very enriching time. And so uh, we've wanted to do that because while we will acknowledge that the Bible is our ultimate authority and it is what we will submit to in every scenario and situation, it is wise for a church to come together and say, hey, here's, here's kind of how we interpret these things and here how these, here's how these truths are going to be practiced in this congregation. And so we're wanting to work through that. So your feedback during this journey is very valuable and important. So we'd encourage you to be there on Monday as we work through some of the last few subjects that are on that statement of faith that will include uh, evangelism, it will include uh, giving, and then what happens after we die, uh, heaven and hell and all those sorts of things. So it's basically everything we haven't gotten to yet. Uh, it's a good random uh, mix of topics, but we'd love for you to be there. Now, one of the reasons we've sought this out, we're going to continue with theology matters throughout this year. We've got a new subject matter that we're going to focus in on, but I'll tell you that at a later date. I'm excited about that. But the reason we've wanted to do this is because we feel like it's important for us to create space for meaningful dialogue, especially over difficult subject matters, right? We live in a society where it is increasingly difficult to be heard and to hear people well. In, in civil and meaningful discourse over challenging subjects is really hard to come by. And so if we can't do that in the church, we don't have much hope for society. And so we want to create safe places to wrestle with these difficult subject matters and these difficult conversations because it is so easy for miscommunication to occur in today's society. And, and think, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. 
a lot of things that contribute to those miscommunications. Uh, one of the ones that we can easily point to is technology, right? A lot of people will now, <clears throat> excuse me, seek to communicate by way of text or social media or email or something along those lines, and we lose a lot of communication in those practices. And in fact, let me just take a quick survey. How many of you have either misunderstood or been misunderstood because of an email or social media, some form of communication? Show of hands. Pretty much everyone, okay? And there's a good reason for that. There's a lot of things that get lost when we rely on those forms of technology. In fact, I wanted to kind of highlight just some of those deficiencies when we use these areas of technology. Came across this, this kind of funny uh, example of what it would look like, uh, this video of what it would look like if we use the same communication practices that we use in email in everyday life. And so let's watch this little short two-minute video to kind of get a sense of these limitations. Hey, Tyler. You going to that all-day meeting tomorrow? I'll be on vacation from Tuesday, June 27th until two days ago. Um, your auto response is still on. I'll be on vacation from Tuesday, June 27th until two days ago. Okay, everyone, I need you to send me your reports ASAP before lunch if possible. We'll do, Trip. We'll do, Trip. We'll do, Trip. We'll do, Trip. Why are you including me in this? We'll be there around seven tonight, if that's okay. Yeah, sounds good. Kind regards, Trip Crosby. Regional sales manager. Work 404-555-6112, extension 405. Mobile 404-555-3767. Email trip at biz dot dot. Success is always an option. John Maxwell, author. Here's that report you needed. I don't see anything. Oh, dang it, I forgot to attach it. <laughs> hey Beth, did you see all the submissions we got today? OMG, I know! Easy on the old caps. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. Semicolon, close parenthesis. <laughs> hey son, you have to watch this video of this cat sleeping on a horse. It is so cute. Mom, I'm at work. Hi, I'm the administrator. I could not deliver this document. It was too big. On Monday at 10.37 a.m., Paul wrote, Hi Trip. this is the latest version of the document you were looking for. Hope it's not too late. Paul. Yeah, I know what I wrote. Hey, really looking forward to seeing you guys tonight. Oh yeah, circular disclosure. The information transmitted just now is intended only for the person or entity to which it is addressed, and it may contain confidential and or privileged material. Any review, retransmission... I don't know what that means. Inbox full. That's what he said. <laughs> hey, what's this poker game I hear about this weekend? Who's that guy? You mean to bring anything, or...? I meant to invite a different David. Rain check. <clears throat> I love that video, it's so great. They've got a lot of good ones. Point being, there's a lot of things that contribute to the breakdown in miscommunication and what leads us to either feeling not heard or being misunderstood or not hearing anyone else. And, and so think about what happens when we rely on email or any form of technology is there's a lot of things that we rely upon in communication that aren't present, right? So I did some research on some of these common statistics that you hear, and so uh, according to the internet, uh, about 55% of communication is dependent upon facial expressions, 
right? And so what we need is to be able to look somebody in the eye to really know what they're communicating. I, I rely upon that a lot of times on Sunday mornings, and a lot of times it's difficult for me to know if you're tired or just in deep meditative prayer. But we need facial recognition to know what's being said. 38% is contingent upon the way things are said, right? The emphasis, the inflection, the pace. You went to the movies? You went to the movies? You went to the movies, right? We need that sort of dialogue to understand what's being said. That means that about 7% is actually understood by the words that are actually used. Only 7%. And so when you use email technology, you eliminate so many huge, important pieces of communication, and that's why things often create this misunderstanding. Now, let's say you get beyond that. There are still some challenges that we face in our society. Another uh, bit of research that I came across uh, surveyed around 1,000 employees in a different Fortune 100 companies, and they determined that the average employee receives somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,800 messages a day. That's, that's by uh, phone, could be memos, could be text, could be a face-to-face conversation, but we are just bombarded with all this different information. So it's hard sometimes to keep it straight. You see a text, I need a reply, but then you forget. All these different things create this moment where you feel like you're either not heard or you didn't hear. Now, let's say you actually create the moment where you have some face-to-face interaction. There's still some challenges to truly hearing and paying attention. Uh, The average individual speaks at a rate of about 150 to 250 words a minute, but the human brain thinks at a rate of about 1,000 to 3,000 words per minute. And so what happens? You get in a conversation, somebody's telling a story, and if it's, if it's not engaging enough or something else is going on, you get distracted. Right? You start thinking about, oh, I've got all this list of things to do. I need to be able to do all these things over here. And all of a sudden, your brain starts to wander, and you don't really hear what somebody is telling you. All these things contribute to these moments where we don't feel heard, which teaches us how precious it really is when we feel like somebody hears us. Right, how incredibly important that is. And a lot of times what we see that fosters that is relationship. Right, there's some, for, um, some form of proximity or connection that allows you to actually hear and be heard. Now, what does any of this have to do with a sermon series about power? Well, the connection is when you think about how unique it is to have anyone in a position of power to actually hear you. That a lot of times these relationships that we depend upon in order to be heard don't exist with people of power. What do you think about the most powerful position in our country, right? President of the United States, right? None of us has that sort of relationship, that sort of proximity where we get to go home and just call the White House and have a conversation with somebody at that level of power. And so what do we do? Well, a lot of times we don't feel heard. And so we try to rally different ways to communicate our voice, whether that's through voting or demonstrations or or some sort of mass movement, because we know to have that opportunity to be heard by someone in power is so rare and so unusual. And yet that's exactly what we get to discover today, that God reveals his power in this incredibly important truth. He hears. And how life-changing that is. And how significant that is for you and me and the implications that it carries. That's going to be what we further explore this morning. Now, before we get to the text and continue this discussion, I want to kind of talk a little bit more about this concept of power. Uh, Last week, we had a chance to really focus in on the corruptible nature of power as it reveals itself in mankind. But but I want us to have a little bit of a broader understanding of it today. I I referred to Andy Crouch. Uh, Andy Crouch is a well-known author, and he wrote this book called Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. 
And one of the things that he establishes in his introduction that I want to bring to your attention today is that power is, in fact, a gift. A lot of times we hear that word, and it comes with a negative connotation because it can be so abused in different scenarios and different situations, but it is actually a gift. And we see that it's a gift that is entrusted to humanity at creation, right, in the, in the very beginning. And so Andy Crouch brings about this understanding and actually makes the argument that really, in its purest form and its, in its most incredible form, power is creating creation itself. He starts referring to it as flourishing power. I want you to kind of uh, hear a little bit of what he has to say about this. He's got a couple of great quotes that I think bring it to clarity. He refers to humanity, man and woman, as image bearers, right, because we are created in the image of God. And he says, these image bearers will become the kind of persons who can themselves say, let there be and let us make, not just deputies or functionaries in a heavenly bureaucracy of command and control, but agents of creativity in a universe designed to create more and more power. On the very first page of the Bible then, power, flourishing, and image-bearing are connected. Power is for flourishing, teeming, fruitful, multiplying abundance. Power creates and shapes an environment where creatures can flourish, making room for the variety, diversity, and unpredictability. Image-bearing is for flourishing. I love this part. The image bearers do not exist for their own flourishing alone, but to bring the whole creation to its fulfillment. Okay, so his, his premise is the most, uh, most incredible expression of power is through creation. And God created the universe in such a way that he entrusts that power to his creation so that more flourishing, more teeming, more fruitfulness, more abundance can take place and fill the earth. Right, I love that premise. So, so let's kind of bring that into a modern day example, okay? The, the, the challenge with corruptible power, right, that can often lead us astray is that a lot of times we view power as an exchange. Now, sometimes this exchange can be innocent, even negotiated and agreed upon in society, right? So, so think about a scenario where an individual wants to purchase a musical instrument, okay? The buyer has power because they have the money. They have purchasing power. The the owner of the music store has power because they have the product. And so the buyer goes into the store with the power of, of the financial capacity, purchases the instrument, and then leaves uh, the instrument with, or leaves the store with that instrument. And you had an exchange take place. In so doing, the buyer lost power, gave some of his power away. Right? The store owner lost power, gave the product away, but then they received something in return. It was an exchange. Okay? Now, the way that that power gets corrupted is when somebody takes without an exchange. They keep power all for themselves. They steal the instrument. They just bring it all in for themselves. That is how we typically think of power, is some sort of exchange. I have the authority, I'll do this for you if you do this for me. And that becomes corruptible when it becomes a one-sided experience. Flourishing power is very different. Flourishing power is the pianist, who all of a sudden, after years of study and work, has been able to create and master the piano, knows the notes, knows the way it is built, and all of a sudden can arrange those notes with a certain pace, with a certain rhythm, with a certain melody, and create music, filling the earth. That's flourishing, but not only that, that pianist can become a piano teacher. And all of a sudden, a student comes along who is powerless, has no ability to master the piano, doesn't know the notes, doesn't know how to arrange them, and what does the piano teacher do? It teaches. 
right? They, they walk alongside and say, here's what you do here. Here's how you place your hand. And now all of a sudden, that student over time can do what? Create. Create music. Different music. New songs. And what happened to the piano teacher in the process? Did they ever lose their power? No. It remained. It stayed. It, it was able to be shared. And all of a sudden, you had more creating. You had more flourishing. That's the power that God intended. That's flourishing power. It's the gospel, isn't it? It's discipleship, right? That, that what God has ultimately done is shared his power of resurrection with us. He doesn't surrender any of it, but he shares it so that we can participate in that flourishing power of the resurrection. That, that's discipleship, to come alongside people and equip the powerless to pour into them so that they can flourish in the life that God intended to them. That's the gift that we have been entrusted with that we have to steward and guard against it being corrupted. And that's what we're going to look at in more detail today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 2, and we're going to continue the story of Moses. Now, last week, we saw this display of power being revealed in the exceeding fruitfulness of the Israelites, right? that they were multiplying greatly, that God was honoring his word to Abraham, and his descendants were multiplying, and God was fulfilling those things, and Pharaoh saw that as a threat. Pharaoh is exemplary of the power of mankind, most powerful person, most powerful nation. And so what do we learn? We learn that power a lot of times sees the, the jeopardy of losing its power as a threat. So he responds against the Israelites with hatred, right? That power loves to have an enemy. So he makes the Israelites his enemy. And once you have an enemy, you can justify the abuse of your power, the corruptible nature of your power. And so what does he do? He begins to implement oppression, slavery, genocide. And what we learned from that exploration last week is that all of us are susceptible to being corrupted by power or following a corruptible power. And so how do we withstand that? How do we guard against falling into that trap? Well, we learned lessons from the midwives who chose to fear God rather than fear man. We learned lessons from the Levite woman who chose wisdom, not just to resign herself to the abuses of such power, but to use every resource at her disposal to fight against it. And then once every resource was used, to step back and to trust God. And what did we see God do? Right, he made a mockery of the power of Pharaoh. Right, he, he absolutely put it as a puppet master on a string. And what we saw is that God's power was moving at just the right pace, at just the right way, at just the right time. That God's power cannot and will not be stopped. And so as that began to unfold, we now get to see Moses grow and begin to realize his own understanding of power and his own journey and how he's going to respond to this flourishing power that God offers. Let's continue in chapter 2, starting in verse 11. It says, One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were, and he watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting, and he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, well, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. And when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Reuel, their father, he asked them, 
Why have you returned so early today? And they answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Reuel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. So Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. Now, during that long period, the king of Egypt died, and the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God, and God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Okay, there are so many different elements to, to Moses' story that I find very compelling, but in particular, I want to look at these early events in the first section of this passage today and really see how Moses begins to respond to an abuse of power, right? What we see is that Moses is confronted with at least three different stories of injustice, right? Somebody abusing their power against someone else, and he intervenes, and what we begin to look at Moses' journey is how he begins to understand what God is really wanting him to do and respond in those situations. So, for example, in justice number one, he responds to the Egyptian who is oppressing the Hebrew. What we're figuring out is that somewhere along the way, Moses become a, became aware that he was a Hebrew. According to Acts chapter 7, in Stephen's speech, he says that when Moses was 40 years old, he confronted the Egyptian. So he's around 40 years at this point. We don't know when, we don't know how, but somewhere along the way, he discovers that, that his people are the ones that are being oppressed. And so think of the identity crisis, right? There he is in the comforts of Pharaoh's home, right? Living with certain power and certain privilege, but, but he knows his people are being oppressed. And so it's creating this, this moral conflict within him. And he sees the Egyptian uh, abusing the Hebrew and he intervenes, right? He, he can't tolerate that form of injustice. So he rises up and he responds, but what does he do? He responds with his own corruptible expression of power, right? He kills the Egyptian. Now let me just stop there and make a sub point for a second, okay? Moses was a murderer. Like, let that sink in for a moment. Premeditated murder, right? He looked left, you looked right, made sure no one was looking, killed the man, and then hid the body. That's who Moses was. So if you ever go through life questioning your past, your mistakes, the depths and the riches of God's grace and mercy, and whether or not it's sufficient, if you question if God can actually use you, reflect upon Moses. He can and will use anyone and everyone. He can and will forgive the most egregious of offenses. Right? It's an incredible reminder there. And so what we see is that Moses has responded to this first injustice with his own corruptible understanding of power. This is that exchange. I'm going to use my power to take what power you have. And he takes the man's life. Right? And so now he's, he's caught. The next day, he shows up and he sees two Hebrews fighting. And once again, Moses feels compelled to intervene. So he confronts the one that's in the wrong. Why are you doing this? Why are you treating each other this way? And how does that person respond? He says, well, who are you? Who made you judge? Who made you ruler? Who gave you this power to speak into this? And he's questioned. Right? Now, not only is Moses' power questioned and his authority brought into consideration, but also he says, and here's something, that Moses all of a sudden has something terrifying in his heart when he hears this guy say, not only that, what are you going to do, kill me like you killed the Egyptian? Moses realized, man, I've been, I've been found out. I've been caught. They know the secret is out. 
Word gets to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh decides to pursue Moses and kill him, probably not just because of the act of murder, but because Moses is now helping Pharaoh's worst enemies, the people that he identified with hatred. And so Moses flees. He runs. His expression of corruption in his own life, though he was trying to respond against injustice, has now forced him to leave the very comforts of his own home and the very power that he once had at his own disposal. But this leads us to a third story of injustice. Now he's in Midian, and there's this priest in the land of Midian that has seven daughters, and these daughters come to the well to to water their father's flocks, when all of a sudden shepherds come along and force them away. And what does Moses do? He intervenes. He can't tolerate the injustice. And so he intervenes, but what do we get this time? Not death, but rescue. It's almost as if we're seeing Moses learn and grow, right? Rather than respond in retaliation and get a story of how he's combating the shepherds and he's taking their life, what we see is a story of protection, a story of rescue, a story of refuge. So essentially what I think we can take away, a point that I want to emphasize with these three stories of injustice is that Moses is being prepared for what God has in store for him. What you see is someone that cannot tolerate injustice, cannot tolerate the abuse of power, but he doesn't really know how to respond. And he keeps failing along the way, but you can see that he is someone that's going to act, that's going to have courage to stand in the face of those who abuse their power and fight for the innocent. And as we see this unfold, we can see that he's growing in his ability to respond accordingly and appropriately. And so we see this evolution in Moses' journey. Now, another thing that we see here is that once he protects these daughters, that his father, the father of these daughters invite Moses home and over for dinner, and I guess the, the way he repays him is by giving one of his daughters away in marriage. He's like, thanks for saving him. Mary Zipporah. And so they agree. And all of a sudden, he's married, they have a child, and just like the story with Joseph, if you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about Joseph and how we get to learn a lot about his mentality, his heart, his perception, with the naming of his son, right? When he names Ephraim, he declares, this is uh, the land of my suffering. Well, we get a similar insight with Moses here. He names his son Gershom, and we get this declaration where Moses says, I am a foreigner in a foreign land. And what we see now is that Moses is going through this journey where he is being stripped of his own power, right? He's going through this identity crisis where he realized He has nothing to fall back upon. Think about the progression that we just read, right? Here we have somebody that's living as an Egyptian, right? And and yet he feels this conflict because he knows that his people are being oppressed. And so he rises up and he tries to fight for his people. But then the very next day, what happens? His own people reject him. You don't have any authority over us. You don't belong with us. And because of his mistakes, he has to flee. He has to leave. And so he comes to Midian. But what do they see? Who do they see him as? An Egyptian saved us. Right? They think he's an Egyptian probably because the clothes he wears. That's not who he was. It's, it's how he portrayed himself on the outside. But that's not who he was. He's not an Egyptian. He just had to leave Pharaoh. He had to run from Pharaoh. All that privilege, all that power, that's gone. Moses is continually losing his identity, and in so doing, he is being stripped of all the power that he previously had at his disposal. He's now at a place of being completely and totally helpless and powerless, a foreigner in a foreign land. And it's there that we begin to see that that's where God wants us to be ready to receive his flourishing power 
place where we begin to become more and more dependent upon him because we can no longer rely upon the power that we thought we had at our disposal. There's an important lesson for all of us in this journey as well. When we think about what it means to be a foreigner in a foreign land, this is a common description of those that follow Jesus. Think of all the different letters that you find in the New Testament that are addressed to aliens, strangers, pilgrims, exiles. And think about the significance of that. Part of what we see when we follow Jesus, the quicker we begin to understand that the power that this world offers us is futile in comparison to the power that God offers us, the quicker we begin to recognize our lack of need for it. Right? If you think about going through this life and realizing this is not what I was destined for, right? that my home is not here in this world, it's in the world that is to come, then all of a sudden, Everything this world has to offer, all the different examples of power are meaningless. And what you really want to depend upon is not what you can amass for yourself, but what God has in store for you, right? That's the sort of place that Moses has found himself. When you and I truly begin to not just think it, but believe it in our core, you weren't here for this world. You're here for the world that is to come. How that changes our perspective and what really matters and what power really looks like and how it heightens our dependency, not on ourselves, but on what God can offer. Moses is at a place of complete and total surrender. And that's a critical step that we all have to go to if we're going to experience this flourishing power that God offers, right? This, this moment where Moses says, I, I can't. And I wonder how many of us need to offer a similar declaration. How many times we just go through life trying harder, just trying so hard to live right, trying so hard to, to fix our marriage or to fix our children or to, to gain credibility at work. And if I just try harder and do this and do that, and what we really need to do is admit our own weakness and fall on our knees and come before our Father and just say, I can't and to admit our powerlessness. That's where God's flourishing power begins, in surrender. Now meanwhile, in Egypt, right, many years later, we don't know exactly how many, but time continues as Moses is living in the land of Midian, and what we're told is that the king of Egypt dies, and I love that, not to be morbid, but I love it, right, because here's, here's the one that was in conflict with God in chapter one. Right, here is the one that was trying to, to go against God's plan, God's way over and over again. And what do we see now? He's dead. God's power does not grow old, does not grow feeble, does not faint. God's power never dies. I love that. And not only that, no matter how much power you can amass for yourself in this life, here's the expression of ultimate power in terms of humanity. Right? The, the most powerful man in the most powerful nation, and guess what? It couldn't overcome death. Only one power can do that. Right, so the king of Egypt dies. But the oppression has continued. And we talked about this last week, that, that though God has been moving, though God is there, they have not been able to discern it. Right? And so we know for at least 40 years they were living in oppression. We, we know that for many more days beyond that, they're still living in oppression. So they've got to be wondering, where is God? How much longer? How much pain? And so the Bible tells us that they are groaning. They're crying out. Those are two words that essentially articulate the same point, 
right, that they are now in a state of deep anguish. This is a cry from a disturbed heart. They too have reached a point of complete powerlessness, complete surrender, where all that is left is for them to cry out to God. And so Israel is being brought to the same place of powerlessness that Moses was being brought to. And it's a reminder to you and me that in order to see God's flourishing, it's not just an individual pursuit, it's a collective one as well. That if God's people, if a community of faith wants to feel God's power in their midst, we have to surrender and acknowledge our own powerlessness along the way. And that is so hard to do, isn't it? Especially in today's world, as a church. I mean, we, we put together certain ways that we go about our philosophy of ministry. We, we do these things all the time, not just us here, I'm saying collectively in our culture, right? Where we'll, we'll dress it up with Christianese and we'll say the right things, but what we ultimately do is, is enact some form of, of ministry or existence as a church where really what we're relying upon is our own power. How much money we can give, what, what our budget says we can do, what programs we can build, what resources we have, all of which are good things, but they're all still kind of anchored in our own abilities and our own power. Rather than just saying, you know what, more than we need money, more than we need programs, more than we need events, we just need the power of God in our midst and to crave his power above our own. That's where it begins. That's where flourishing finds its root. When both as individuals and as a people, we come and admit our helplessness. And it's here at this juncture for both Moses and Israel that we get one of the most powerful moments in this passage. God heard. <laughs> Love that. He heard him. Right? This, this creator God who up to this moment, more often than not, has been described in power through what he says. He said, let there be light, let there be moon and stars and sun and sky. Let me speak to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And now he's revealing his power because he hears. He hears them. And listen to how this hearing is described. It's, it's uh, elaborated on with at least three additional terms. That God remembers, he looks, and he's concerned. You see that? This is the depth of the way in which he hears. The first of all, he remembers, right? So it's not just that God is moved by compassion. It's not just that he's empathetic to their situation, but he remembers what he has said, right? He, he tells them in this moment, I, I remember that I had told you you would be a great nation, that you would multiply and be fruitful. I know that I'm gonna bring you out of this nation of enslavement. This is from Genesis 15, he remembers his word. What we see is that God is faithful. Trust that, church. No doubt there are gonna be seasons where we question when, when we question how, but we must never question if. If God says, it will be so. Right Now, in so doing, we also find an example for how we begin to be ambassadors for flourishing power as well. Right, The way that God reveals this in his in his presence and in his character is what we should follow as well. That if we are going to listen to the cries of the powerless, if we're gonna hear the voices of the vulnerable, those that are also in states of surrender, we too need to be faithful when we seek to try to bring them into flourishing power, when we come alongside them. Awareness is not enough. 
Putting some comment on social media is not enough. Words have to meet deeds. If we say, we must do. That's where flourishing power begins to take root. That's where we begin to demonstrate that we've actually heard people as God has heard us. Not only that, he looks, right? This, to me, is this image of God giving full focus, full attention to the people of Israel. You've ever been in conversations where somebody's doing something else, right? You're, you're trying to talk to them, and they're still on their phone. They're doing chores around the house. I get in trouble for this all the time uh, because my mind works at the 3,000 words per minute. And so a lot of times we'll be at home and we'll be in a conversation. Uh, Jennifer and I will be talking and I'm thinking about, well, okay, I still got to finish the laundry and I need to take the trash out. And I start doing all this stuff. And so she'll be in the middle of a story and I'm like sitting there at the sink. And the next thing she knows, I'm in the garage and she'll come back and she's like, I just love it when I'm in the middle of the story and somebody just walks out of the room, you know? And I'm like, yeah, sorry about that. And, and so there's a big difference in those conversations and when somebody actually stops and just looks, makes eye contact. Because here I am, I'm giving you full focus, full attention. This is what we see that God is doing. He has looked upon Israel. He is not distracted, right? He, he knows what they're facing. He has given them full attention. So again, this becomes an example for you and me. When we hear the voices of the vulnerable, and we are entrusted with this power that leads to flourishing. It's not enough for us just to hear it off in the periphery, just to consider it every once in a while. We have to give it full attention and focus if we're actually gonna demonstrate, hey, we hear you, right? We have to model what God has demonstrated for us. Third thing, he's concerned, right? He, he shows us concern. This word actually means he has knowledge, he, he understands. This reminds me of all those stories we find in the Gospels where Jesus is going along his way and all of a sudden he encounters somebody that's sick, that's hurting, that's demon-possessed, whatever, and what does it say? He had compassion on them, right? He's, he's moved, he's stirred, he understands their situation. This is what he's showing to the people of Israel. It's not just that he knows facts, that he knows details, but he's genuinely moved in his heart demonstrating concern for them. And so again, that becomes an example for us, right? It's not enough for us just to become familiar with something. When we see and hear people in difficult situations of surrender, we have to seek greater understanding. We have to seek greater empathy, greater compassion, and genuinely be concerned if we're gonna lead them into the flourishing that God has designed for them. Now, the way that any of that takes place is through hearing, right, that God hears. So we have an example for us, right? Part of what you and I need to recognize is that if we're going to live into this gift of power, this flourishing power that, that Andy Crouch has spoken of and that we see hinted at throughout scriptures, then we need to follow a similar example. We need to listen to the voices of the powerless around us. And when we do so, we do so by remembering to follow through with whatever it is that we say we're going to do, that we actually give them full attention and focus, that we move with genuine concern. We have to break free from a self-absorbed, self-centered way of life if we're truly going to live according to flourishing power. And the reason we do that, and the reason it's so compelling is because it's the gospel. Is it not? I mean, God hears the cries of the oppression that is brought on by sin and death. He hears it rise up from the earth. 
And so what does he do? He remembers his intent. He remembers his covenant that he is making for himself a people of his very own, a kingdom, a kingdom of people that get to be his and they get to experience worship with him. He will be their God. And so what does he do? He looks upon earth and he says, I'm gonna do something about this. And he leaves the comforts of heaven and takes on flesh and he dwells among us. And when he dwells among us, we get one of the greatest gifts of the gospel. God and Jesus truly understand. Jesus comes to not just teach. He experiences every temptation. He experiences betrayal. He experiences heartache. He experiences grief. He experiences pain so that for thousands of years that will follow him, when his people cry out and say, this hurts, how do I carry this? What can you do for me? He says, I know. I understand as he's felt it himself. And God takes that weight, that enslavement of sin and death, and Jesus takes that burden, and when he offers his life on the cross and offers that sacrifice, he demonstrates the fullness of his power by being resurrected from the grave, conquering death itself, and that power becomes a flourishing power that he entrusts in all those who call upon his name, that we too now get to share in the resurrection from the grave. That's the flourishing power of the gospel. And it all begins with this simple statement, God hears. And so let me remind you this morning, church, he hears you. Every morning, not every morning, most mornings, I have a little bit of a routine. Um, I, I set my alarm and I try to wake up early. And usually when that alarm goes off, I'm not happy about it. And I have this kind of inner debate in my mind about how great it would be just to stay asleep. So I hit snooze. And then after a few minutes, it goes off again. And this time, I'm usually a little bit more able to persuade myself to get out of bed. And so I take whatever energy I can and I swing my feet over the side of my bed. Room is still dark, um, the only one up at this point. And, and staying somewhat half asleep, I stumble through a darkened room until I make my way to my sink and start brushing my teeth. And it's usually about halfway through that process that I, I actually start to wake up. And my mind starts to function, it starts to work a little bit. And I, and I walk into the living room and it's the quietest the house really ever is throughout the rest of the day. And I open the word, and I just read. A lot of times I'm, I'm reading for preparation for Sunday. Uh, a lot of times I'm just reading to see what it is God needs to show me or lay on my heart. And then after I do that, if it's a good day, then I try to do some form of exercise and to continue to wake myself up, trying to, to go through a process of caring for mind, body, and soul. And when all that's done, I know I've just got a few moments left before the day really begins before everyone else begins to wake up and noise begins to fill the house. And so what I do is I get down on my knees and I pray. And I pray for a lot of things. More often than not, I start by praying for my family. Think about each one of them and the concerns I have for them and the hopes I have for them. I just pray. I pray for you all a lot. Many of you by name this church as a whole, the concerns I have, the hopes I have. I just pray. 
Some moments it's filled with confession, some with just praise. But I can tell you this with pretty great certainty. That moment is arguably the most fulfilling part of my day. Because I know he hears. And that fact blows my mind and almost leaves me undone. But the creator of all somehow in his infinite wisdom and love and compassion hears. He hears you. Every season of your life, he hears you. And so when you go through those seasons and you experience that grief and you just miss your husband, you miss your wife, and you cry out in that grief, he hears when you find yourself praying for your child because you see that they're making bad decisions, they're resisting things, hurting themselves, and the concern that that creates in your heart as a parent, and the weight that you feel like you carry, when you cry out in that concern, he hears. When you walk through life and you have these doubts, you have these concerns, Things feel confusing and you find yourself being frustrated with God. You find yourself being angry with God. You cry out to him and you acknowledge that he hears. When you struggle with some form of loneliness and you feel isolated, struggling with depression, whatever it is, and you cry out in the moment, he hears. And when you ask him in that moment of powerlessness to come in, to invade your heart, to invade your soul, to take over, to see him as Lord, he hears. We gather together as as his people. We pray for his power to be unleashed in our lives, in this church, in this community, in this world. I assure you, he hears. And so with that unbelievable truth in mind, let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful that despite all of your power, all of your glory, all your significance, you have not chosen to look upon us with indifference, to be uncaring, to be unsympathetic, God, but you have responded in the most compassionate, most miraculous way imaginable by sending us the gift of your son, Jesus. And God, if there is ever a doubt, ever a question that any of us would carry through our life as to whether or not you're there, whether or not you carry those concerns, whether or not you actually can love and forgive, may we look to the cross, may we look to the story of this Jesus who reminds us that you hear. And so God, we lift up these prayers of praise to you. And for whatever it is that any of us carry today, if it's heartache, if it's grief, if it's concern, if it's stress, if it's exhaustion, whatever it is, God, we we surrender to you. And we tell you in this moment, God, we can't. We can't do this life in our own power. We can't do these things in our own strength. And so we acknowledge our dependency upon you. 
Father, as a church, let us not try to rely upon strategies and resources. God, we want you. So do not delay. Do not hold back, Father. Let your power be set free in our lives. Let it be set free here in this place, in this church, this community in this world, so that we can see the flourishing that is only found in you and is only experienced through this gospel and is only declared through the sacred, precious, and powerful name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen.